Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. In this podcast, we bring you the third installment of our three-part series presented by Kiri Parr and Sean Brady. Kiri offers her perspective on the compelling story of how an unreliable IT system led to innocent people going to jail. Hello everyone, my name is Sean Brady and welcome to part three, the final part of our podcast series on the great post office scandal. And this one, Kiri, is all about the lawyers. All about the lawyers and the legal system. And the thing that blows my mind and the thing that I really want to hear the story of is how did this get so out of control? It's one thing to have a software system with bugs. It's a whole other thing that people are going to jail and the number of fraud cases that the post office is dealing with has jumped dramatically from what it had before this system. What was going on behind the scenes with the lawyers, with the post office that would produce this crazy situation that took 20 years essentially to come to light? I think for lawyers who are now practicing litigation in our modern environment with the technology, with the deep pockets of our corporate clients, it's about having that skill of not just sitting there and thinking in a narrow context of what what have I been asked to do right here and now? But what does that mean in the bigger system? And actually knowing that part of your job is to actually understand that bigger context and and delivering your job in that context, because I think that's what sort of drove this uh, in the direction that it ended up taking. Perfect. Let's get into it. So we're going to start with confidentiality agreements. Because for about a decade, they played a really crucial role in keeping issues around the Horizon software largely unknown. And you can imagine if you're a sub-postmaster through the early 2000s and you'd been accused of um, uh, fraud or, or theft, a lot of those cases led to settlement agreements between the post office and those sub-postmasters. And a lot of those settlement agreements as is absolutely standard practice, contained confidentiality agreements. If you were a sub-postmaster and rather than stand trial for fraud or theft, you uh, cut a deal, entered a settlement agreement, you were under a strict confidentiality agreements. And it became logical at an individual level for those sub-postmasters to not talk. It became a culture of... Uh, silence around what was going on broadly because you wouldn't want to fight with the post office because if they were going to fight you, you, you were hearing stories, um, you weren't going to put yourself at risk of being no, when you've just sued for the breach of yeah. agreement. For many sub-postmasters, they had no idea what was happening to them and that it was happening to hundreds of other sub-postmasters across the UK. I've got another great quote from our Justice Fraser from our class action in 2020 And he describes it as a distinguishing feature of the post office's conduct from 1999 to 2021 was a culture of secrecy and excessive confidentiality generally, particularly focused on Horizon. So a culture of secrecy and suppression is one of those underlying background drivers to why 
this story became what it did. So next we're going to go into the disclosure game. All right. So what's the disclosure game? If you're a non-lawyer, what's the disclosure game? Well, the disclosure game is if if you're in litigation, one of the things you have to do is exchange records and documentations with the other side. Yeah. It's always a fraught process. My entire legal litigation experience was that discovery, exchanging records, it's hard work. There's a lot of records. And as the years go on, we are keeping even more and more records. And there is a huge issue emerging with uh, the courts going, surely we don't need to each exchange a million records because at the end of the day, the, there's only two records that count. We don't need to be doing this ent entire and expensive disclosure process. Um, so it's one of the hardest areas of a litigation um, process to manage, especially if you're the one wanting information and the other party doesn't want to give it to you. So there's a lot of gaming and strategy around disclosure as, as an element of the litigation process. But if you're a sub-postmaster and you've got to defend your case, you need information about the Horizon system and how it was working. And this is possibly one of the most extraordinary case studies and disclosure process um, any of you were, would hear. I've got to set the scene for a technical element that was in play in the UK in 1999 because this is not what the case is in Australia, but in the UK they had a change in the presumption about evidence from mechanical devices. And the original presumption was that a prosecutor had to provide conclusive proof that devices were working properly. So this is the time of speed cameras, right? If you can imagine you're prosecuting lots of motorists and if you're the prosecutor and every single time you want to prosecute a speeding driver because the speeding gun didn't work, it led to an argument of, no, we should be able to presume that the speed gun works. So we changed the burden of proof. And that sort of changed, you'd say, for legalese almost. And I don't mean it like legalese, but for ease of application of the legal process. Let's make an assumption and, and, yeah. and move on from there. So yeah. the presumption changed to... In the absence of contrary evidence, the courts will presume that technical instruments are in order at the material time. For the post office, this was great, right? Yep. Think about <laughs> better words. We're not talking about speed cameras anymore. We're talking about the Horizon IT system. So you're saying that not only is there a natural bias towards believing the computer's right, but there's a legal so in, presumption. In the late 1990s in the UK, they actually embedded it in their evidence rules. So post office case, remember, sub-postmasters have the contractual burden of proving that they weren't at fault. And they're also now compounded with an evidential burden, which puts it on them to prove that the horizon system wasn't working. Let's go back into Tracy and Seema's cases. Tracy's defence team in 2001 made a detailed disclosure request around Horizon. They had a technical expert, a gentleman called Michael Turner. So they asked for the evidence. The post office went, who would pay for this information? Now, this is when Fujitsu come back into the story because guess what a term was in the contract between the post office and Fujitsu? If you want us to provide you with information, you have to pay us. So the post office went, well, Fujitsu are telling us that it would cost £20,000 to produce the evidence you've requested. Are you going to pay for that? Never got the evidence. Tracy went to jail. Now let's get to Seema Misra's case. 
2010, they bought the post office. Um, she had discrepancies. She could never make sense of anything. And her case was worth around 70, it was around 70,000 pounds of discrepancies at the time that it was all exposed and she got um, accused of theft. She goes to prison. 2010, remember the issues with Horizon are starting to be in the media and there's starting to be awareness at a government level that something's going on with the post office. But these were known and aware of within the post office in Fujitsu for seven, six, seven, eight years at this point. Yes. Her defence team appoint an expert, Professor Charles McLaughlin, to establish if anything had gone wrong with the Horizon software or hardware. And to work this out, he again asked the post office to provide the known error log. The post office rejected this request, arguing that these records were too expensive to obtain. Again, they were relying on the fact that requests for information by the post office from Fujitsu came with a bill. So 2010, 10 years later, post office is still saying, well, it just costs us a lot of money and we won't. it's just too burdensome. The letter of the def- that Seema Misra's team received from the post office said, the retrieval of data is not a free service. It is a very expensive and depends upon the amount of data which has to be retrieved, which is why you were required to be very precise. Please, could you also advise as to why you consider the data relevant? Very loyally letter. And the post office, you can imagine the horizon system is like a haystack. And basically, if you want information, they're telling you, you've got to tell us what needle you want. There's no way a technical expert on the outside of a piece of a software is going to be able to tell you, I actually want this particular bit. The expert then asked to run tests on the Horizon system that was denied by the post office and they also asked to look at uh, could you give us the Horizon data behind other prosecutions that you've made. That was denied. So this is the general correspondence that happens between two parties. You normally try and sort it out between yourselves. Now, Seamers take it to court. They go before a judge and goes, we need this information. They make four separate disclosure applications before the trial. Every single one of them was unsuccessful. The court accepted the post office's argument that the information requests were too vague, too expensive and too time consuming to retrieve. Those are the techniques you use to avoid disclosure, by the way, standard practice. And judges agree with it a lot. So my practice was disclosure arguments are some of the hardest ones to make because of the cost and time that's attached to them. The post office did order its expert to meet with Seema Misra's expert while they were working on Mr Jenkins' laptop. And can you imagine this? This is what experts do all the time, <laughs> hot tapping. Yep. He actually noticed that we're Mr... Conclaving. We're conclaving, they're conclaving. No, we're conclaving, yes. That's the right word. Um, they're conclaving and Professor McLaughlin, Seema Misra's expert, notices that Dr. Or Mr Jenkins had access to the NT event log, the known error log. The post office had its error logs after saying we don't. And the defence team asked for time to examine those logs. The post office argues that the defence team had all the material they needed and the trial shouldn't be delayed. The fight over disclosure is still fully at play in the class action in 2019. This time the post office acknowledges it exists but they submit it's irrelevant and a red herring. Well, this is where the lovely Justice Fraser comes back in. He observes that this argument is obstructive. 
he subsequently found that the known error log was the most important document disclosed in the litigation. And it disclosed thousands of records of Horizon's failure from 1999 of bugs and the fixes that had been implemented. But they didn't stop with the argument that it was irrelevant and a red herring. The class action did not just get handed the known error log. Because after arguing it was irrelevant and a red herring, they next argued that they couldn't hand over those records because they weren't held by them. They were actually owned by Fujitsu. This argument failed. Justice Fraser said, well, this contract gives you the right to give you access to this information, so hand it over. The post office tried again. The third tactic used by the post office was to be difficult about what was produced. And again... You know, it's just too hard for us to produce them. And again, the class has to go back before Justice Fraser to get the order for the production of the records. So they were fighting and fighting. And in 2019, the post office finally hands over hundreds of thousands of documents and spreadsheets. The class action team estimated that they spent more than 5,000 hours grouping the known error logs into patterns and themes. This is where, you know, it is a masterclass in how litigation lawyers prevent disclosure of relevant documents. When you read the case, it's it's cost too much. It will take too much time. It's a fishing expedition. And, uh, you know, if you take a Discovery Act application before a court, you have to be willing to lose because you're more likely to lose than win. They are low success applications. Well, certainly in my experience, they're the hardest application, some of the hardest applications to be run because halfway through the case, does the judge want to get into the detail about the documents? It's difficult. Um, I've got one more disclosure story to tell. All right, so parallel to the class action. So we're running the class action, which is all about the sub postmasters going, we were wrongly prosecuted. The sub-postmasters are also trying to have their prosecutions quashed. And that doesn't happen in the class action. That's happening in the Criminal Cases Review Commission. And 47 individual prosecutions have been referred to the Court of Appeal. So the agency responsible, the commission responsible for, you know, having inappropriate prosecutions overturned actually refers 47 of the prosecutions to the Court of Appeal to go, we think these prosecutions are flawed, they should be overturned. There were two limbs to those referrals because the post office failed to properly investigate the circumstances behind the discrepancies. And the second ground, the more serious ground, was that the post office's prosecution was an affront to the public conscience. And of course, they have to make documents relevant to their prosecution process to the Court of Appeal, so the decision about whether or not those prosecutions were, were appropriate or not. So on 12th of November 2021... Six days out from hearing, the post office disclosed another tranche of documents. Amongst those documents is a document called the Clark Advice. The Clark Advice relates to advice by a senior criminal barrister about the evidence of Mr. Gareth Jenkins. <laughs> so these are this is the Fujitsu employee who's been giving the expert advice to the post office throughout 2000 through to about 2012, 2013. The Clark advice is given in 2013. The Clark advice reveals that the post office board knows that it, its expert, Mr. Gareth Jenkins, had given incomplete and potentially misleading evidence in at least six prosecutions. So the barrister acting for the sub-postmasters after reading it said, in my almost 30 years experience at the bar, I have never, never come across information that has been so electrifying 
it almost caused my teeth to fall out when I read it. That's incredible. There's more. Go on. There's a second Clark advice, which surfaced in March 2021. So the first one's basically saying the board know. The board know in 2013 that their prosecutions were based on wrong evidence. And they don't tell anyone. We're we're eight years, nine years later, and we've stopped prosecuting, but we don't do anything about the past prosecutions. There was a second Clark advice, yeah. which related to the shredding of evidence by the post office. Always a good sign. And the Court of Appeal in this case described it as uh, extraordinary that in 2013, a government-owned corporation had to be advised about the legality of shredding documents in these circumstances. What's that mean? Had to be advised about the legality? Well, the obligation is if you think you've got a risk of litigation, your obligation is to preserve documents. You don't destroy them. What happens in practice is a conversation around, well, I've held these records for seven years. I'm no longer statutorily obliged to keep them. Which records do I as an organisation have to keep or not keep? Now, the overarching litigation obligation is that you can't destroy records in the usual case. You've got to preserve them. So in 2013, knowing that they've got this issue with their prosecutions for 13 years, they're also taking advice about what records do I have to keep or not keep. So is it fair to say that they're essentially working out what they can get away with legally destroying, at least have a legal reason? That would be a proposition. Hmm. And that hasn't been answered fully. So that's, that is one of those issues that, that gets looked that, into that in the future. Be, will be resolved. So think about the timing. We're in 2013. They stopped prosecuting at the, after they received this advice. So we know there were no prosecutions from 2014. So the board goes, oh no. Oh no, we better stop prosecutions. Yep. But they don't do anything about the prior events. Um, and there wasn't just this uh, legal advice. Uh, there's two other internal reports. One's called the Ismay Report and the other one's called the Dedica Report, which suggests that the post office had significant internal misgivings about horizon system. But they were still there gung-ho going and... and They notified their insurers as well. (laughs) Oh, another good sign. Yeah. So what what you've got at play is that culture of secrecy that Justice Fraser talked about and absolutely in play from around this time onwards. So to this day, we don't know the full extent of what went on inside the post office for what knowledge it had and what it did um, and how it responded to it. But certainly it could have been as early as 2013, 2014. The post office certainly had knowledge of the issues with its horizon system, the issues with its prosecutions, and could have taken a different path. But it didn't do anything back then. It took a 20-year journey through the court's institutions to actually get it all unraveled. I want to dive into one other little story here because this story is still ongoing. When the class action got settled, so in 2021, the class action got settled. The 57 million pounds or so got paid out to all the, to compensate the sub postmasters. One of the terms of that deal, and this was an Alan Bates term, so it's, it's very special. He made sure that the post office would compensate any sub postmaster who had had a wrongful demand to um, make good a discrepancy that came out of the horizon system over the last two decades. So the post office agreed 
if anybody thinks that they've repaid money to the post office wrongly, we'll repay it. So that makes the number much bigger than the 700 people potentially who at some point had to deal with... Do you want the numbers? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's called the historic shortfall scheme. The post office had estimated that these claims would be around £35 million. By the time the scheme closed, there were 2,400 applications with claims exceeding £311 million. Was that half a billion Australian dollars? Technically, in April 2021, the UK Post Office ceased to be a going concern. The UK government is underwriting it. And yes, in 2021, the CEO of the Post Office announced that the Post Office did not have the financial resources to meet the level of compensation required. So they've got the class action claim. They've got this horizon, the historical shortfall scheme claimed. And for quite a while, I should say, the government went for all the sub-postmasters you've agreed to a settlement in the class action. That's all there will be. And remember, you know, Tracy Felstead, who went to jail in 2001, received £17,000 under that class action. That was all that got left to distribute to her. So there is a huge amount of pressure that's now sitting there on the UK government to properly compensate the sub-postmasters. So you got the class action, you got the scheme... But then there's people who have criminal records who are trying to get there. And that's a separate process that has to happen somewhere else. And think about it. The post office financially turned itself around through 2000, 2015. They went from a really badly uh, performing organisation to a profitable, successful corporation. The suggestion is made is that they have done it off the backs of its very own sub-postmasters. And in 2022, after immense pressure, the UK government agreed to pay compensation to the victims and launch a statutory inquiry into the scandal. And, you know, we can but hope that that inquiry will reveal all of the elements of the system that gave rise to this miscarriage of justice. And why didn't anyone do anything along the way? For any lawyer listening, these stories rarely unpack the lawyer's roles. And this is the first time I I know of where the Solicitor's Regulation Authority in the UK, you know, the equivalent of our law societies, has launched an investigation into the roles the lawyers played. And is is that purely on the discovery side and, and stopping the documents come to light or is it broader than that? It's broader than that. They're looking at all of the lawyers, the role that all of the lawyers who acted for the post office played throughout the journey of this. So this is the internal lawyers and the external lawyers who advised the post office over this 20-year period. And for the non-lawyers out there, what, what sort of, what does that practically look like, some of those things? Have you got a few examples of... So in answer that to question, again, the, the barrister who acted in the class action believes that there are four key questions to consider about the role the lawyers played through this 20-year journey. Question one, which lawyers knew about the 2013 Clark advice, which revealed that the post office had serially been prosecuting its postmasters on a flawed basis? Who knew that? So that's basically saying you're a lawyer in a legal system and you have now got information that suggests that a conviction that took place may have... Was based on flawed evidence. Yes, which lawyers kept a lid on that knowledge? So if you knew that, did you then act to 
not act on it. I'm not a lawyer. You're a lawyer. What's your duty there? Well, this is the this is what needs to become unpacked because all lawyers have an overarching duty to the court. So if the Clark advice was known in 2013, why wasn't it given to the Criminal Cases Review Commission when it began its investigation in 2015? So keep in mind, there's a lot of evidence that only started to come to light in 2019, 2020, during the class action and during the the review into the criminal prosecutions by the Court of Appeal. That evidence dates back to 2013 and beyond. Why was it only disclosed that late in the proceedings? So there's a really big question there about the decisions that the lawyers were making around what was relevant and what wasn't and how they were meeting that disclosure obligation. Yep. So that's the first two. Who... Who knew and why and who said something? So the third question is what documents were disclosed and the decisions made around disclosure. Before you leave that, what does that mean? Well, it would mean that did you make a decision to not disclose a document because it was in your client's interest to make sure that a court didn't see that document if the overriding obligation was you should have disclosed it. So it could be a breach of an obligation just to form a view that a document's not relevant when it patently should have been disclosed. And then the next question is, who were the lawyers who were involved in the decision to stop prosecutions in 2014 and how that decision was made? So what did the lawyers know and when? So that's a bit like point two, isn't it? You knew and when, you didn't say that there was prosecutions in the past that would have been a problem. And four is, if prosecution stopped, you, you had to have been asking the question, why are you going to why do you not want to prosecute anyone anymore? Yeah, and it comes back to, again, that fundamental point of if you put the interests of your client above the primary obligation to act in the best interests of justice, that is the kind of conduct that the solicitor's regulation authority have to look into. And systemically, lots of those small decisions along the way was our snowball. But you can imagine how lawyers come in and out of cases. They come in, they do one thing, they come out again, very much the case, if you're a barrister, you're, you're relying on the instructions from your instructing solicitors. But there are several law firms involved in this case that had very long-running relationships with the post office. But, you know, these scandals happen. It's very rare for the role of the individual lawyers advising organisations to be scrutinised intently. So Justice Owen put the systemic injustice this way or the role of lawyers this way he said there were so many lawyers involved who were, rather than the question, is this right, all too frequently said the actual question was, what can we get away with? And that is the tension that plays through for lawyers in modern corporate practice. Yes. Do they get swayed by what can we get away with versus what is the right thing to do? I've got a few last quotes to end this off on. I've got to share some magical words of Alan Bates, because he participated in that mediation scheme through 2014. He set up the Justice for Subpostmasters Alliance and, you know, they had several years through 2014, 2015, where they were trying to mediate with the post office and trying to get agreements reached for post offices who had uh, been prosecuted. And it became a very legal process. The post office ultimately walked away from the mediation scheme. He described the exercise as becoming one of highly paid lawyers dancing on the head of a pen. So 
it became an exercise in legal argument and jousting as opposed to what is the right thing to do. So what you're seeing is that the class action finally, after you know 10 years, unraveled the post office's use of the legal system to try and stay alive. Nick Wallace has written a fantastic book on this story, The Great Post Office Scandal. I think he summarises the entire scandal very well. He went, uh, Horizon was a badly procured and atrociously implemented IT disaster. It was operated in an environment where flawed and incompetent people were able to destroy people's lives without a shred of accountability. I have no doubt most people at the post office still believe the National Federation of Subpostmasters George Thompson was right when he described the campaigners' fight for justice as a cottage industry by dishonest people chancing their luck. Entrenched cultural belief does not simply disappear with a few apologies and a new chief executive. Kiri Para, thank you very much. <laughs>